In the name of the one holy and living God. Amen. Today is the second to last Sunday of the liturgical year. Next Sunday is the feast of the reign of Christ, the last Sunday of the liturgical year, and our readings are building to a sort of a crescendo with talk of the end times or of what the kingdom will be like. And then, uh, and then we get more of the same in Advent, actually, but that's sort of the, the trajectory of these readings that we have today. We always hear scriptural passages in multiple contexts. There's always the historical context in which the passage was written and which it reflects. There is our own social context in which we hear the passage. There's also the personal context in which we hear it, what's going on in our own life and how that impacts how we hear it or, or the way that Scripture impacts us. There are more, but those are three that I want to focus on today, historical, social, and personal. So something of the historical context for these passages. The Isaiah passage was written in what is called the post-exilic period. The Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem, and many of the people of Israel were living in Babylon, and then the Persian king Cyrus defeated the Babylonians, and many of the Jews returned back to Jerusalem, and that's the context for the reading today. Jerusalem has largely been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. There is corruption among the leaders and fighting and bickering. It's a pretty dark uh, setting. And that is the context in which this prophecy is written. With the destruction of the temple and the, and the, the kingdom that will come. The temple, of course, features in the Luke passage as well. So in this post-exilic period, the temple was rebuilt. Then King Herod, like, did a massive renovation and made it look like, you know, what we hear about in the gospel passage today. And then after an uprising among the Jews, the Romans destroyed the second temple. Now, Luke was written after that had happened. So the temple has already been destroyed, but is writing about it as if it's about to happen. The persecutions that are being written about are happening already. And so it's being written in a way of kind of trying to give strength to those who are being persecuted at that time. One of the best things I read about this gospel was Christians need to stop using this passage of Luke to try and calculate which earthquake or which war is the one that signals that the end is near. So there's that historical context. And in both of them, right, the temple represents the manifestation of God's presence on the earth. So the destruction of the temple is huge. 
And of course, for us Christians, the point is that Jesus, not the temple, is the manifestation of God's presence on the earth. It's not a building. Jesus is the holy of holies. So a kind of historical context in which these are being written. But we also have to hear these as people living in California, in the Bay Area, in 2022. As some of you may know, our bishop is retiring, and uh, I was asked to serve on the search committee for a new bishop. And we're doing a series of listening sessions at congregations throughout the diocese to hear what people uh, feel we need in the church and what we need in a leader for our next bishop. So yesterday I got to help run one of those listening sessions at St. Augustine's Church in Oakland. St. Augustine's is the only historically black congregation in our diocese, in our Episcopal diocese. It is located on the corner of Telegraph and 29th in an area that has seen a lot of economic hardship. And I got off the freeway and I came down Martin Luther King and I took a right turn to go under the freeway on 29th towards the church. And there's huge homeless encampments on both sides of the underpass. And uh, three or four cop cars with their lights going. I get under the freeway. There's a long line of people waiting to get into the food pantry of St. Augustine's. The line of people are almost entirely Asian. The, there's an ambulance and some more police there because apparently someone from the homeless encampment had assaulted an elderly Asian woman who had been waiting in line for the food pantry. I learned that the food pantry actually dates back to 1969 when the Black Panthers started a free breakfast program run out of St. Augustine's Episcopal Church. That's history. That's pretty significant, right? It's a beautiful church inside wood, and, but it was great to gather with our only historically black congregation and other people from that area of the diocese and, uh, and talk to them. And I thought, wow, what a really different setting than St. John's Ross. <laughs> and I was thinking as I left the meeting, like, I wonder how these two readings will be heard at St. Augustine's with a homeless encampment down the street and a food pantry and all this police activity and so many, you know, closed buildings and stuff around them versus how they will be heard here this morning at St. John's. Maybe that message of the new heaven and the new earth from Isaiah will resonate a little more deeply at St. Augustine's than it does here. And maybe me, we here at St. John's more than St. Augustine's need to hear the beginning of the gospel passage where the disciples are like, wow, look at this amazing, look at all the glory and the shiny stuff. 
and how amazing this is. And Jesus is basically saying, don't put your trust in things that won't last. Don't put your faith in those things because those aren't going to save you. You might think your amazing house will save you or all your possessions or your wealth, but it's not going to last. It's not going to be what saves you. So I think it's worth noting how we hear Scripture based on our different context, right? Half an hour drive from here, completely different social context, but reading the exact same Scripture passages, and how will they be heard in those communities? How are we hearing it? And of course, there's the personal context. Whatever's going on in your personal life, whatever's going on in your own history, whatever you carry with you this morning. And part of what's so beautiful about that Isaiah passage is, is in the midst of bleakness, it's saying no matter what, God can do a new thing. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, no matter how bad it is. No matter what you carry with you, there is hope and there is trust and there is faith if you will engage it. It's really interesting to me at the, towards the beginning of the passage it says something about the things of old will not be remembered. And I was reading a commentary on this passage where the author was basically encouraging, saying maybe this passage is actually calling us into a little of what, what the writer called holy amnesia. That maybe there are things we carry with us that we should actually pray to forget. Now, I don't mean like, you know, I mean, there's, right, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. I don't think it means that. But that maybe there are things we carry with us, memories or grudges or conflicts we have that we cling to too much. And maybe if we would try to forget them a little, it might open our hearts to God's healing a little more. Maybe we need to let go of some of the things of old, not in an irresponsible way or a way that doesn't hold people accountable who need to be, but in a way that's about our own, uh, perhaps, healing. Now, I have to say, this Isaiah passage, I took a, a class in seminary that was just on the book of Isaiah, and, um, and I, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It is so beautifully written and such vivid, vivid um, imagery. And what it is describing is that the life intended by God for all creation, what is described there is sort of back to the garden. It is what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like and what God wishes for all of creation and it's so different than the reality I saw at St. Augustine's or the contrast between this neighborhood and that neighborhood that seems so stark to me. But I just, I love that image of, you know, the lion and the lamb and, and the, the harmony and the peace. It's beautiful. We attended a, uh, a dinner at a friend's house on Friday. The hosts are, he's Persian, he's from 
Iran came when he was a child fleeing the revolution. He had some sisters here. His parents stayed there, sent an, put an 11-year-old kid on a plane to America. His wife is uh, Jewish, was born in Uzbekistan when it was part of the Soviet Union. One of the other couples was a friend, an, another friend who came from Iran when he was a kid. So they're both secular Muslims. The other guy's wife is Mexican-American, Roman Catholic background. Then uh, another couple, he's an immigrant from Greece. His wife is, her parents were both immigrants from the Middle East area. So she's first generation. So Amy and I were actually the most kind of bland <laughs> boring. I mean, my mom's first generation Greek-American, but uh, the rest of us are just kind of way back, whatever, mutts. Um, so a little less interesting. But it, And the host was kind of giving thanks for the life that he's been able to build in this country. And I was thinking about it in the context of Veterans Day. And uh, I, I looked around the table and, I, and that meal with all those immigrant stories. And I looked at the table and I thought, this is what makes America great. This is what our veterans have served for. So that a dinner like this can happen with all those different backgrounds. And all those, right, so secular Muslims, a secular Jew, a Roman Catholic, two Episcopalians, and two Greek Orthodox can all sit together and have this meal. Now, our friend Adam, he's the immigrant from Greece who's Greek Orthodox, he, he always likes to ask kind of a, a, a friendly but provocative question. So his question, right, I've told you who's at the table, right? So, and he grew up Greek Orthodox. So his question was, can non-Christians go to heaven? And I was like, oh, this is so Adam, right? Like, huh, let's see, Muslim, Muslim, Roman Catholic, Episcopalian. Here's a zinger. <laughs> and I was thinking of this Isaiah passage because I knew I wanted to preach on it. And... and and I was like, look at this table. This table is a vision of the heavenly banquet. This diversity gathered here, it's stunning, it's beautiful. And, and frankly, like, if not everyone at this table gets to be at the heavenly banquet, then like, I'm not sure I wanna be at the heavenly banquet. I wanna be with all these people because I think that's the vision that we're given in Isaiah of all these different people gathering and finding some sort of harmony and commonality. And we have different backgrounds, different views, and it was really uh, beautiful. But I think we have to live into what Isaiah is calling us to do there. It's an incredible message of hope, but it's also a call to action. I invite, take, the, take the bulletin home with you and reread that passage. Those who build homes will get to live in them, not 
build homes and other people live in them. Those who tend to the crops will get to eat them. People will get the rewards of their labor. It is a call for justice and a call for equality. Everybody has housing in this vision from Isaiah. Infants don't die young. People live long lives. It's a call for health care. It's about justice and equity. I, I mean, it's almost providential that we have this reading on the very day that St. John's is hosting a civic academy with the Marin Organizing Committee to look at the question of living wages for those who provide care for our elders here in Marin. That's an issue. We just need to read the Isaiah passage with so many of these issues. I'm still kind of grappling with, I was like, man, I can't quite imagine like what it would be like if there was a homeless encampment down the street and we had a huge food pantry. We, we kind of tried to do something like that and half the town went crazy. Uh, when we tried to host the rotating emergency shelter, people were like, I moved to Ross to get away from that. Um, we got to think through these things. Not, not like guilt, but like what does it mean? What are our obligations? What are our responsibilities? What are the ways we can live into that? The lion and the lamb together. It's an incredible image. The serpent just eating dust, not killing anyone anymore. No more harm and damage. How do we live into that? It's a call to action. So I want to invite each one of us to think. Maybe in your professional or, or avocational life, you already do a lot of this work, but maybe like, what's one thing you could do this week that might move towards that vision? There's a great saying that um, we without God cannot. God without us will not. We can't wait just like, well, okay, I wonder when this kingdom God promised is coming. We have to partner with God in that. What are the things we can do, the specific actions? And it could be anything. It could be reconciling. It can be interacting with someone. I mean, one of our table dinner conversations was about the way that uh, partisanship in this country has, like, demonized each other. Suddenly, your next-door neighbor is an enemy like, how do we move beyond that and honor the humanity of each other, whatever political side you're on? How do we acknowledge the, the realities of our social inequalities and take actual steps to try and address those? So just invite you to maybe take the passage home and sit with it and think, like, what's one thing I could do this coming week that might be one step closer to a new heaven and a new earth.